Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Van Maren Show on LifeSiteNews.com. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and today we're going to be talking to one of the most creative pro-life activists in the United States of America. And for those of you who track along with the pro-life movement, you'll be very familiar with his work. Those of you who haven't are going to have the good fortune of being introduced to his work today. And that is my friend Ryan Bomberger. He is an Emmy Award-winning creative professional and international public speaker. I've heard him speak several times. If you haven't had the opportunity to hear him tell his story and explain why abortion, especially is such a blight on the black community, you really do need to go to YouTube and check out his stuff. He's a citizen journalist, what he calls a factivist, and an author of the powerful book, Not Equal, Civil Rights Gone Wrong. He's the co-founder of the Radiance Foundation, which is a life-affirming organization based, of course, on the belief that every single human life has purpose. And Ryan has a very unique perspective on the innate nature of purpose because he's one of 10 children who were adopted and loved into a diverse family of 15. Yeah, you heard that right, 15. So today, as an adoptee and also an adoptive father himself, he enjoys illuminating the worth that we all possess. So he co-founded the Radiance Foundation with his wife, Bethany, and he extensively researches and presents the challenging social issues surrounding abortion throughout ad campaigns, multimedia talks, fearless journalism, and he's gotten a chance to speak, always to great controversy, of course, at places like Harvard, Princeton, Columbia Law School, the University of Notre Dame, Ireland's Trinity College, the March for Life in Washington, D.C., the March for Life in the United Kingdom, at Capitol Hill briefings, and hundreds of of other events. And what I wanted to talk to Ryan about today was the devastating toll that abortion has especially taken on the black community because we've really seen the abortion industry and Planned Parenthood try to wrap themselves in the mantle of social justice to try and uh, connect the abortion issue, this issue that ends in the, you know, the horrifying demise of preborn children to issues of racial equality. And nobody has been better at absolutely dismantling those lies uh, than Ryan Bomberger. And so without further introduction, I present this conversation with pro-life activist Ryan Bomberger. So your story begins in, in an extraordinarily pro-life way. Could you just share with our listeners your, your story? Yes, definitely. I'm that 1% that's used 100% of the time to justify abortion. My birth mom experienced the horror and the violence of rape and somehow was strong enough to not only choose life, but give me the incredible gift of adoption. I, I grew up in a small family of 15. I have six brothers, six sisters, wow. 10 of us are adopted. And that's really where my passion for defending human life, regardless of circumstances of conception, began because I had two parents who loved the mess out of me. I had a birth mom who gave me this incredible future that she never could have imagined. And so here I am now, happily married, four children, two of whom were adopted. So when people ask me why am I passionate about this, well, I would just say it just kind of courses through my veins. And as someone who's, who is mixed uh, biracially, I, and I put that in quotes because I'm a firm believer we're just one human race. Right. But, you know, I'm black and I'm white. But this issue impacts all of us. But the demographic here in the United States that is hit the hardest is the black community. So I guess the question really would be, why wouldn't I speak up? Why wouldn't I talk about this issue? Why wouldn't I defend human dignity? So 
that's my background. That's why I am so passionate and why I'll never stop just illuminating that every human life has a purpose. Well, your your life and your background intersect with so many of today's hot button issues, which is why I suppose you've become uh, quite a hot button speaker. But what was it like to grow up uh, as as a member of a household where, where many people were adopted? And how did that give you a perspective uh, on adoption? And, and how did that perspective inform your pro-life work now? Well, adoption unleashes purpose. And I, and I witnessed that. I grew up in that. That was what I saw not just in my own life, but I saw in my other nine siblings who were also adopted. And, and we're white, black, we're biracial, we're Native American, Vietnamese, so a really mixed family. I know what diversity is. So when people talk about <laughs> yeah. diversity, I am actually biologically diverse, and our family is diverse. But the one thing that I found so powerful is that I, I live this whole narrative where you know the whole myth of the unwanted child was shattered. My parents loved those of us that the world would so easily write off, and and a world, unfortunately, still today that that has so many misunderstandings about what adoption is. But if I had to sum it up, adoption is love. Adoption is mercy. Adoption is social justice. Uh, transracial adoption is the I think one of the most powerful acts of racial reconciliation. Loving a child of a different race or ethnicity simply because he or she deserves to be loved. So having lived that whole experience, it's so much easier for me now to be such a passionate advocate for adoption. I mean, it's one of the only two alternatives to the violence of abortion. Do you remember when you found out what abortion was for the first time? Yes. And in fact, it was at the same time that I learned my own story. I was 13 years old when I fully understood what abortion was and also when I fully understood how I came to be. Apparently, I didn't understand my parents' explanations prior to that, and so it came out in the conversation, and to have your whole life kind of rewritten, you know, at teenage years, which are already tumultuous enough, right. but throw in there, oh, wait, no, here's actually what happened. It was devastating, but I had an opportunity just weeks after that to do a persuasion speech in public school on the issue of abortion, and that was when I first truly discovered what abortion was, the violence of abortion. I used images actually from Pro-Life Action League. I remember right. there were brochures and um, um, Heartbeat International. And I did my trifold little AV display. And that's when I visually understood what abortion was. But I also understood that I have a story. I have a story to tell. And I would see my friends, you know, my fellow students crying as I shared that. And that was way back in eighth grade. So that was when I fully understood what abortion was. And I also understood my parents' whole passion and why and why they did what they did. They, they loved God, and out of that love of God, they loved people. And they loved us, those that the world would so easily throw away. And, and so it all came into clarity for me back when I was 13. One of the things that, that I like to ask on this podcast, because I've talked to so many different pro-life activists, and the one thing that I think is true for, for virtually all of us is that everybody had other plans. Uh, nobody nobody planned to, to work full-time in the pro-life movement. Nobody grew up thinking, you know, when I'm older, I, I want to get you know screamed at by strangers and, and have most people oppose my work yeah. and uh, misrepresent me regularly. So what was your road like from this time where you, you did this speech and you told your story and you realized how powerful your story was 
to being a, a full-time pro-life activist as you are now? It was a long time, let me tell you, because that was not really in my plans. I mean, to be able to share my story was one thing, and to realize I needed to share that, but no, that wasn't exactly the top of my list. <laughs> hey, you're going to be hated by everybody. <laughs> no, not exactly. Although Scripture does tell us we will be hated, so we kinda, as Christians, we kind of have to get used to that, but... I wanted to own radio stations. I was into music. I was into sports. I played, you know, football until my leg was shattered, which then led me more into music. I, I, I love design. I, I wanted to, at one point, own my own ad agency, and I did for a number of years. And so the whole thing of being some sort of, <laughs> some sort of activist that even <laughs> churches don't even like. No, which, you know, I consider myself a factivist, by the way. I know you are, too, because yeah. we just believe in, in in the facts, not just emotions driving us. But it, there was really no plan that I wrote out that any of it looked like, hmm, I'm going to be someone that's going to be demonized by any mainstream media journalist and by most Christian church. I shouldn't right. say most, but by a lot of Christian yeah, churches. Yeah, yeah no. It, there was... It really was a moment where there was a moment where my wife and I realized my, my wife Bethany, my favorite person on the planet, love her like crazy. She's the co-founder of the Ratings Foundation. She and I felt that we had no choice but to tackle tough social issues. And so she was a teacher for 13 years. I was creative director in the ad, ad agency world for 13 years, and we knew that we had to do more. And so it was at the point of when I got married and. And probably about a year into that marriage, we realized we've got to do something about these issues. So it was long after eighth grade. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. That's so interesting because one of the questions I get asked quite frequently, and this is something else every pro-life activist has a different story, is how do you make doing pro-life activism work with being married? And, and for me, the answer is a lot easier because I met my wife at a pro-life conference. So it was kind of she knew what she was in for, it's safe to say. But how did how do you how did you and your wife create this pro life partnership where you're out there, um, and yes, you're coming from a place of love. You're sharing your story, which, as you've just explained, is is full of love and unconditional love from these different people. But at the same time, you're also presenting the violence of abortion and and the controversy that that just naturally ignites whenever it is mentioned aloud. Yeah. Not exactly the easiest thing to convey, certainly not. We are passionate about illuminating these things with love and balancing that with unapologetic truth, which is a difficult balance. But really, you know, you mentioned you and your wife met at a pro event. My wife and I did too. We actually met at a planning meeting for a fundraiser for our local pregnancy center. Okay. I was actually the, the lead singer in a band, and my wife was the head of the marketing committee and it was a love at first sight sort of thing. So anybody out there, just you know, you can find love at a <laughs> PRC event. I'm just saying. But we—that's where we met. And so there was no question about what we stood for. You know, what we were passionate about. And ironically, and I don't tell the story and give it enough of the the time that it really needs. But my my wife, years after that, after her life had kind of spiraled out of control, and so did mine at the same time. Uh, but we were. We weren't together. Uh, we had dated briefly, and then we separated and went our, our, our different ways. But she ended up um, pregnant without being married as a teacher in inner-city Philly and feeling the shame of all of that and she, you know, trying to not have her students fall into those traps. And here she was in that situation and you know, feeling 
feeling like she was a she was a failure in, in certain ways. And of course, she wasn't a failure. I just thank God that she has always been a strong person. She never considered abortion, but right. this is part of our, the story of the Radiance Foundation. She never considered abortion, but the pressure on her from her fellow teachers, her colleagues, you know, they would say things like, just abort it. Some would even offer her money, you know, if you need help with the abortion. But yet, this whole mentality that somehow unplanned pregnancy can only end in misery is a lie. It's a narrative, you know, particularly from the abortion industry that just says women aren't strong enough. And here my wife chose life. She chose to be a single parent despite, you know, the, the horrible relationship she had with her boyfriend at that time. Um, but thank God some great guy came along. Um, what's his name? <laughs> Ryan, <laughs> I'm joking. I'm not saying I'm a great guy, but thank God, you know, the Lord brought me into her life, but she had already been a single mom for almost two years. And I came into the picture and we got married within a year's time, became our oldest daughter's father, basically from the time, just days before she turned two. And I've been her dad for years. We I adopted her. Her name is Radiance. She's actually the reason for the name of our organization. So that's really, it was kind of like, this was all orchestrated. This was all just kind of part of this natural journey of both Bethany and I um, meeting, separating, meeting again, <laughs> getting married, and then realizing we both have stories that need to be told. There are people out there who our messages can resonate with. And that really was the birth of a Radiance Foundation because Radiance, our oldest daughter, beautifully and radically transformed Bethany's life, which enabled everything else to happen the way it did. And so here we are. Years later, my, my oldest is actually 14, and this is what we've committed our lives to, to creatively illuminating that every life has purpose. That origin story actually sounds like it was written out in advance for maximum impact, even though I know that. <laughs> I'm telling you. You couldn't make it up. journalists will ask me, is this all real? This sounds a little fantastic. Yeah. I mean, I'm not giving you all the details to everything, but it's real, 100%. So give us an idea of what it is that the Radiance Foundation does. Uh, many of our listeners will be familiar with your work, but some won't. So just give us an idea of, of exactly how it is that you reach out to the culture with this truth and with these stories. Absolutely. There, Jonathan, there are four components of what we do through Range Foundation. The first one, we create these ad campaigns, whether billboard campaigns, social media campaigns. In fact, when we first started, the first campaign that we did was to tackle race and abortion at the same time in the South, in Georgia. <laughs> and we launched our TooManyAborted.com campaign, which got massive mainstream media attention. The second component are our multimedia presentations that we do around the world. So we go to colleges, conferences, uh, we help raise millions for pregnancy centers, and we deliver these multimedia presentations. And so, you know, whether it's Harvard, Princeton, or University of Notre Dame, or most recently Wheaton College, we, we just tackle tough issues all in the context of God-given purpose. The third component is our journalism, what I like to refer to as fearless journalism, because right. today's so-called journalists are just spineless. They, they won't tell the truth about, you just name the issue, fill in the blank there. And then our fourth part is our outreach, our compassionate community outreaches. One of those is called Sally's Lambs, for instance. It's our outreach to birth moms who choose adoption over abortion. And it helps with financial assistance, helps with spiritual assistance and material assistance and connecting those who are often forgotten, birth moms, 
and connecting them with resources in their local area. So that really is how we kind of carry out our, our mission. Now, you've also written a book, and this is where, again, as you mentioned earlier, you decided to tackle the issues of race and abortion uh, just to make sure that nobody was, nobody was left conflicted about your work. Uh, the title of that book was Not Equal, Civil Rights Gone Wrong. What was the essential thesis of, of that book? I looked at the civil rights movement and saw how it morphed into an industry and how it was on the wrong side of so many issues. That really was the the, the catalyst for me writing this book. I would see, for instance, with the NAACP and National Urban League siding with Planned Parenthood, defending Planned Parenthood. I thought, wait a minute. Um, you do realize they were birthed in eugenic racism and elitism. Yeah. Why would you be defending the leading killer of black lives? And so I I just started, you know, just from my own writing, just my own published articles, I put together this book of of memes and and this you know thousands of hours of research and came up with this this compilation called Not Equal Civil Rights Gone Wrong and it really is it, it also helped that the NAACP sued me for right. parroting their names so that that also had that played into it as well yeah, no, I've been protested by them once for doing a, a pro life display on a campus and it 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 boggled my mind even then, and that was one of the things I, I kind of wanted to ask you, because if you look at the the history of the civil rights movement as it began, uh, you know, you think of the signs, I am a man, people fighting to have essentially their humanity recognized, demands exactly. being made that, look, this is what the foundation of America and Almighty God promises us. And we are here, as Martin Luther King Jr. said, to cash a check. You actually owe us this respect and, and you owe us these rights. And then we see sort of this very tragic shift that just as, you know, the sanitation crews were hosing the blood of the civil rights marchers out of the streets, you know, the trash men started heaving bags of dead babies onto the back of garbage trucks. We exchanged one human rights abuse for another one that was arguably, I would certainly say, more violent. And one of the tragic aspects of this is, is people like Jesse Jackson, who who did work with Martin Luther King Jr., he wrote some of the most powerfully pro-life statements available at the time back in the 60s and the 70s. And I remember reading a column from Nat Hentoff, who used to write for the Village Voice. He was actually an atheist pro-lifer. And he actually asked Jesse Jackson once years later, why did you change your position when there was no good evidence for it? And he said that Jackson just looked very uncomfortable and said he'd get back to him. And of, of course, he never did. So how do you explain this? this really tragic shift, this exchange of one human rights abuse for another. Humanity. <laughs> we are we are frail. We love the shape of a circle because we keep repeating the same things over and over and over again. I mean, the fact that you, I love how you laid that out. It really is this bizarre sort of going from a position of oppression to becoming the oppressors to ignoring the obvious systemic racism that actually exists. I mean, you hear people, you know, social justice warriors all the time denouncing racism, racism, racism. It's, it's yeah. everywhere. It's in TV shows. It's in the news media. It's in schools. It's in, you know, it's in Hollywood. It's everywhere except in the one industry that kills for a living. I mean, where abortion rates are up to five times higher among the black community here in New York City, you know, the home of Planned Parenthood. <laughs> More black babies being aborted than born alive. The latest report now is 1,000, about 1,047 
babies, black babies aborted for every 1,000 born alive. I mean, and yet they don't see it. They don't see it at all. In fact, you have the NAACP, National Urban League, and so many other uh, civil rights organizations led by by black individuals or predominantly black individuals that celebrate and partner with Planned Parenthood, that defend the abortion industry. It boggles the mind. But there is there's something that happens. Like when Jesse Jackson did his whole 180-degree conversion, he was pro-life up until he ran for president on the Democrat ticket in 1984. Right. So it's amazing what politics will do to your principles. It is, but so because my my education is in history, and that's also one of my primary interests. And one of the things, so first when I, when I saw a lot of people talking about you know Margaret Sanger, the founder of of Planned Parenthood, which you know Planned Parenthood was actually the second name for her organization. They had to switch names because the previous organization had been so closely as- associated with the Nazis. And so they needed to sort of offload some of that baggage. And at first, I, I didn't think much of, of her background because I was like, well, how hard is it to find a racist in the 1920s anyways, right? Like, that doesn't seem like a, a super difficult thing to do. And then I realized they still hand out awards in her name. And that while we're busy tearing down statues all over the place, it's, it's something that I have mixed feelings about. Uh, the one person who said racist things so obviously horrifying as and there's no nuance here right she's not like she was a a good person with some bad views this is just extremely obvious and in fact uh the irony of all of this is that nobody would have loved margaret sanger more than today's alt-right i've written quite a bit about you know today's white supremacists and they're a pretty pathetic bunch um i agree you know there was a there was a great video in in 2018 of, of some guy uh <laughs> some uh, alt-right leader having to interrupt one of his rants because his dad was pounding on his bedroom uh, bedroom door saying like, oh in essence, you can't be racist in there. I told you, you can't be racist in there, right? Like th- this is the alt-right. The, 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 uh, the, <laughs> the demand for fascists in the media vastly outstrips the actual supply of them. Um, but Margaret, Margaret Sanger would fit in perfectly with these people. And so what is, what is with our inability if we're going to grapple with history, I'm all for that. I think we should spend more time doing that. So why aren't we actually taking a closer look at this legacy? Or is it simply because uh, Cecile Richards and Planned Parenthood are the sacred cow that no one can touch? I, the aversion to history is just, uh, it's incomprehensible to me. I mean, at one point you hear people say, you know, repeating that whole adage, you know, people who don't know their history are doomed to repeat it. Yet that you have you have these same people willfully ignoring history, willfully re revising history. I mean, how do you separate from your racist past, from you know, one of the leading eugenicists, Margaret Sanger? How do you separate if you celebrate her every day? And which version of Margaret Sanger, by the way, do they celebrate? Do they celebrate the one that said that there should actually be prenatal care and that the unborn child has rights as well? Do they separate from the Margaret Sanger who says that any civilization that has hundreds of thousands of abortions is is a disgrace? Yeah, Um, it's actually fun to make the argument that she was a pro-life racist. Right. Which one? Is it those things or was it the racist who spoke of the KKK or was it the one who had, you know, Nazi sympathizers on her board? I mean, which Margaret Sanger are they celebrating? But yet there is this inexplicable aversion to simply discoverable history, by the way. It's not like you have to dig, dig and dig and dig, especially with the Internet. And yet 
People will do that because emotions drive everything. And when you throw euphemisms out there like reproductive justice, yes, what are you talking about? First of all, no one's preventing anybody from reproducing, okay? You have the right to reproduce. Um, the, the problem is once you have done that, you want to be able to kill that innocent human life. Where is there justice in that? And when you have a community that's already ravaged by death, how in the world are you celebrating more death? So it, it, it boggles my mind. It actually is worse than that. It, it's, it's crushing. It's soul crushing to see the black community stand, largely stand with Planned Parenthood, including pastors, including churches. Yeah, because put, with put, put another way, it's, it's not just celebrating more death. It's celebrating fewer black babies. It's I mean, we're, we're we'll, this this society today wants to cry white supremacy all the time, wants to cry racism all the time. But Planned Parenthood will tweet out, "Hey, black women, it's safer for you to have an abortion than to, you know, carry your pregnancy to yeah. term or to give birth." That's actually what they said. That's almost verbatim in their in their tweet, and that's fine because Planned Parenthood could say that. Imagine if President Trump or or anybody from the GOP tweeted something like that. But Planned Parenthood tweets it, and it's fine. Yeah. It, it's such a bizarre, surreal situation we have here where people don't know to identify racism when it's right there in front of their face. Yeah, so let's briefly touch on on Black Lives Matter, which hasn't been as front and center uh, over the last year or so as it has been. I find... Uh, Black Lives Matter and, and the Women's March and all these groups kind of interesting because when the Women's March happened in Washington, D.C. after Trump's inauguration, I actually uh, I went there with uh, our mutual friend Andy Moore just to see what it was all about. And I found it interesting that as the polls indicate less and less Americans support Planned Parenthood, that one of the things the abortion industry has done so as not to have to talk about abortion very much is they've hitched their wagon to all these other sexy progressive causes, right? So, mm -hmm. so now it's you know Planned Parenthood as opposed to school shootings because that's shooting the, you know getting rid of them a few trimesters too late. Um, but they're also very much for racial equality and fewer black babies for a very very reasonable price. Uh, you know they're attaching themselves to the Women's March, the immigration issue, uh, you name it. But the Black Lives Matter movement is interesting because they, they present themselves very consciously as the successors of the civil rights movement, when one of the interesting things that I look at is that is they are also one of the first black social movements not to originate in the black churches. They're a, a, a hard-edged, secular, uh, very, very violent in many cases movement, which is completely distinct from Martin Luther King Jr.'s uh, policies of of nonviolence. So when you look at Black Lives Matter, not just as a pro-lifer, but as somebody who writes on these issues specifically, uh, what do you see? Oh, I, I see a movement that is not moving us in the right direction. As someone who is black, who's black and white, biracial, as black as Obama, however you want to describe me, I I see it as a destructive secular movement that is hostile to Christianity. In fact, if you look at their movement for black lives, that's their policy platform. That's when all these leaders of the Black Lives, black lives Matter movement came together and decided, okay, here are our policy directives. It's actually m4bl.net. I mean, aside from the fact that it's incredibly poorly written, it's, um, it's astounding. 
in some of its assertions. I mean, here's my problem with it in, in, in some of the specifics where it's hostile to Christianity. There, there is no goal of racial reconciliation, none. So how in the world do you talk about you know, racism if you're not going to talk about reconciliation? So there's no racial reconciliation. There are no fathers. This whole thing is – the whole Black Lives Matter movement is predicated, especially by the three women who founded it, including Alicia Garza. It's the total negation of fathers. They don't include fathers. They don't even talk about dads or fathers because they can't because they're promoting a radical LGBTQ ideology. Right. So there are many reasons why it's hostile to Christianity. And as you mentioned, it didn't originate in, in the church, but yet you have – in the black church in particular – but you have churches inexplicably embracing – the Black Lives Matter movement. My charge to them is, why isn't the church leading on these issues of racial justice? Why are we embracing a secular, inarguably Marxist and racist movement to somehow say, well, we want to address these issues of racial justice? You can't do that through Black Lives Matter. You can't. I mean, it's all about racial identity. It's all about segregation, self-segregation. Um, and, and I can't embrace it. I cannot embrace it as a Christian. I cannot embrace it on so many levels. And so it really dismays me when I see, you know, like the Assemblies of God churches embracing or InterVarsity embracing Black Lives Matter and other many evangelicals and, and even Catholic churches embracing a movement that is so hostile to the foundational beliefs of our faith. Well, that brings us seamlessly into the last topic that I would like to discuss, which is this social justice mentality, which has is, is been very much gripping the Christian church in general. So part of this is easily explainable simply due to the fact that, especially over the last five to ten years, with the explosion of the T and the LGBT uh, orthodoxy in, in, in terms of, you know, the legalization of, of gay marriage in the United States in 2015. So we're seeing Christianity completely shoved off its previous cultural pedestal. And in, in instead, a lot of, as you, as you put it, foundational Christian beliefs are instead considered to be markers of bigotry and hatred. And when you hold those beliefs, you know, you're fundamentally opposed to tolerance, etc., etc. And so part of this is just a natural reaction of religious organizations trying to figure out how to navigate these new waters and getting some things wrong and getting some things right. Um, you know, a lot of people, I think, were surprised to realize that, oh, wow, like being a Christian actually has a, a negative connotation for many people in many places now rather than a positive one. But secondarily, you see this sort of second surge of Christians that are desperately attempting to disassociate themselves from any issue that is considered controversial. And both you and I have experienced this extensively um, in, in regard to abortion, where Christians essentially are embarrassed of the victims of abortion because they make people feel bad, and then they have to assert a position that people won't like. And I'll give you my position on this, and then I, I'd like to hear yours when people ask me why I don't take those who put the sort of uh, seamless garment uh, philosophy of pro-life work uh, forward, it's, it's, it's because of this. The people who are making the argument, the people who are saying, well, if you argue about abortion, you should also argue about poverty and human trafficking and all these things, they're not arguing in good faith. And the easiest way to prove this is to ask them whether they go to people who fight human trafficking and say, that's all very well and good, but are you also arguing against abortion? 
Uh, do they go to soup kitchens and ask, uh, do you attend, you know, pickets outside your local abortion clinic? No, this criticism only ever goes in one direction. It's only ever directed at those who fight abortion, and as such, it just invalidates their argument. They're, they're doing this intentionally to discredit the pro-life movement rather than to ensure the maximum number of suffering uh, people are actually cared for. And, and adding on to that, they always they, they look at the word pro-life and they say, well, what does the word pro-life mean? I'm like, well, it's, it's a slogan we came up with to, to you use to, you know, label the, the anti-abortion movement. It's not some biblical word you can perform exegesis on. Uh, so they're taking this word and saying, well, what does this really mean? I'm like, a bunch of pro-life activists thought it up around a table to describe those of us who fight abortion. So... <laughs> It's not this. You don't have to perform uh, etymological surgery on it to try and and discover upon closer uh, evaluation that abortion really isn't part of it. That's what it was invented for. So that's my frustration about these people. I just I don't think they're arguing in good faith, and both their approach to the word and their approach to pro-life activists, in my mind, prove that. That's that's exactly it. I mean, the problem is. You've got a, a society now that wants to redefine everything because language matters, and they understand that. That's why they want to control language. That. That's why they yes. want to control what we're able to say. <laughs> but that's also why they take a word like pro-life and, and expand its definition. Well, anytime any word means everything, it then becomes nothing. Right. There's no way that it can encompass all these things. And what people confuse pro-life with being is – is Christianity. As Christians, we are called to care for the least of these, for the destitute, for the broken. We're supposed to cover that whole spectrum as Christians. But that's not what pro-life means. And so I'm just trying to imagine if it were 1862 and I, you know, or 1852, and I'm a slave, and someone comes up to me and goes, I would really love to end your injustice, but I really want to make sure you get good job training first. I want to make sure you get a good home and, right. and good meals you know, grocery care. What in the world? This whole mentality. We have the luxury today to talk about all these other things and put them up in the same level of pro-life ethic. We can do this whole moral equivalence. It's nonsense. The whole thought that you have to address every single issue in order to address one is nonsense. And it's only it's, – it's their excuse for not addressing the human rights injustice of our day. So – the seamless garment, I appreciate those who who want to or feel like they can address everything because none of us can, by the way. No. Pro-life, pro-life organizations can barely barely have the budgets to fight one issue, right. let alone, oh, let's tackle on 300 other yeah. issues. We can't, nor do, as you said, nor do we expect other organizations. I'm not expecting the American Heart Association to deal with homelessness. Right, right. That's not their mission. And so – this is just a way of the social justice, the people who pervert social justice approach all this to dismiss the the urgency of now. I mean, MLK talked about the urgency of now, and sadly, we have so many Christians who don't have that compulsion at all, that they're perfectly fine equating, and I'm not lying about this at all, but I was in a meeting with some other liberal evangelicals, and they were talking about what constitutes a pro-life ethic. And the person next to me, famous person, I won't mention the name, but he said cage-free chickens. Yeah. I'm like, wait a minute, whoa, 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 whoa. You're putting cage-free chickens on the same level of the slaughter of innocent human lives through abortion? Well, it's all part of the pro-life ethic. That's, that's where we're wrong. <laughs> I yeah. mean, we wonder sometimes why it took so long for slavery to be abolished here in the United States. Um, we're living it right now. 
with the failure to abolish you know abortion here in the states whether it's in Canada or anywhere else around the world it's because of that same warped mentality that somehow we don't see injustice for what it really is sometimes do you ever wonder if it would be helpful that one of the reasons I like the phrase anti-abortion is because it narrows it all the way down and allows me to ask the question oh why aren't you anti-abortion because if you think about it, the abolitionists were, were often referred to as anti-slavery advocates because they weren't just pro-happy and healthy free people. They were also very specifically chaining them up and dragging them across the ocean, just like I'm not simply pro-happy and healthy babies. I'm very specifically anti-suctioning them to death. And so I don't object to the term anti-abortion because it's, 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 it's clarifying in a way that doesn't allow Christians to slither out of their responsibility. And still, as far as I'm concerned, puts me on solid rhetorical ground when I'm engaging pro-choice people. Oh, exactly. But we've we've believed the lie that somehow we can't just be against something. Well, I certainly hope you're against sex trafficking. Right? I certainly hope you're against modern slavery. It, it's such a nonsensical sort of ideology that somehow we can't be against. I am. I am 100% anti-abortion. And yes, I think sometimes it would probably help to to use that instead of the word pro-life because i think there are times when people feel like they have to justify this particular stance but look at look at some of these other wonderful things we do well i'm anti-abortion i want to abolish abortion it is an evil act that destroys human lives so you know get over this whole thought process and mainstream media is going to attack us anyway it doesn't matter what term we use to be honest they will always attack because mainstream media overall, is clearly pro-abortion. One final question. You're going to have a lot of Christians listening to this of all different denominations, and you work full-time on the pro-life movement. You've had to deal with a lot of Christian opposition to your pro-life work, which I will point out, you can go to the radiancefoundation.org, is a lot less controversial even than what other pro-life groups like the Pro-Life Action League, or the Canadian Center for Bioethical Reform do. And so what would you say to those Christians about abortion to challenge them uh, to realize that abortion is the injustice of our time, not simply one other uh, issue on a list that they can care about optionally if they feel like it? Quite honestly, if a Christian has not watched a video of an abortion, has not seen images of an abortion, you're going to be easily swept up in the euphemisms. If you don't know what this injustice looks like, then your heart is not going to be moved enough to fully understand it. I still, after all these years, have such a hard time looking at those images, watching any video, you know, of an actual abortion. It's the most horrific thing you would ever see. I, I don't think you can see that and not be changed. So for Christians out there who feel like, you know, how, how can I possibly fight for this? Well, just realize that the things that are worth fighting for are the ones that the, the world is going to rail against the most. What is the world trying to silence? Who are they trying to silence the most? Not the ones out there fighting human trafficking. Not the ones out there providing, you know, wells for impoverished communities in Africa. What they're fighting against are those who are defending those who have no voice, those who are the most powerless, those who are the most vulnerable, and they work really hard. When I say they, I'm talking about the world, I'm talking about mainstream media, I'm talking about institutions and even churches. They, keep, they work
work very hard to keep this under wraps, to keep it behind these, these closed doors, to keep it out of our purview, to keep it out of our line of sight, we have to be intentional about finding out what is this injustice. And I guarantee you, expose yourself to it for a moment. That's why we have the Internet. It's an incredible gift in many ways. And it really, I think, will reset people's priorities to understand why we do fight this human rights injustice of our day. Ryan, thank you so much for taking the time to share this with us. Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with pro-life activist Ryan Bomberger. For those of you who are interested, head over to his website, RadianceFoundation.org, to check out his book, Not Equal, Civil Rights Gone Wrong. Thanks so much for joining us. You can check out the past podcasts and, of course, a wide range of other columns, commentary, and news at LifeSiteNews.com. We really hope you'll join us all next week.